brought to you by dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Race Against Dementia and the Alzheimer's Association, bringing you research, news, career tips and support. Hello and thank you for tuning into the Dementia Researcher podcast. I'm Dr. Anna Malach, and I'm a research fellow at the UK Dementia Research Institute at UCL. And I use spatial transcriptomics to study cellular changes around plaques in Alzheimer's disease. It's my pleasure to be hosting this very special podcast recorded on location from the ADBD conference in Gothenburg. This is the second show in a two-part special, bringing you all the news and highlights from this leading international conference, sharing some of the latest development in neurodegeneration research. Today, we're going to reflect on the scientific program and the talks that have taken place over the last three days of the event. That could be from Thursday afternoon to Saturday, but who knows, I'm sort of losing track of my days. <laughs> Joining me to share their highlights are the amazing Dr. Chi Yude Momo, the fabulous Dr. Melissa Schofield, and the incredible Emily McCann. Hello, everyone. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Let's go around the table and do some proper introduction. Tell us about yourself and what you do. I'm Emily McCann. I'm a final year PhD student at University of Queensland. Um, my project is about developing a cognitive tests to pick up dementia a bit earlier and hopefully trying to relate that to the functional changes that are happening in their brain. So I'm Dr. Chiu Dei Mama and I'm a senior researcher based primarily at Imperial College in London, um, Karolinska Institute, Aga Khan University in Kenya, and also I'm currently doing a fellowship on equity in brain health at the University of San Francisco in California, part of the Global Brain Health Institute. So my research work program, I suppose, uses a, um, translational approaches towards demand and prediction and prevention of dementia with a focus on diverse populations. And Melissa. <laughs> so I'm Dr. Melissa Schofield, based at the University of Manchester. I'm a postdoctoral research associate and uh, we're performing multionic analyses across multiple dementias. So we've already looked at Alzheimer's and Huntington's, but we're extending that to Parkinson's disease, dementia, dementia with Lewy bodies, and also Parkinson's without dementia with the aim of seeing what similarities and differences there are between diseases and how we can explain why they have different clinical progressions and symptoms. And we're focusing on metabolomics, metalomics, and also proteomics as part of the multiomics network. Very nice. Thank you, everyone. Before we get to your highlights, I should ask if any of you are presenting this week. Tell us about that. So, Emily, you mentioned you gave an online presentation. A lot of my project was having a look at um, positronomous and tomography imaging um, to have a look at sort of metabolic changes in the back of the brain, um, particularly for typical Alzheimer's disease, uh, posterior cortical atrophy, which is a visual variant of Alzheimer's disease, uh, Parkinson's with and without dementia, and dementia with Lewy bodies. So all of those diseases tend to have um, metabolic changes in the back of the brain, sort of reflecting the degeneration. So um, my project was about developing perception tests to target those regions specifically for these kinds of dimensions. Um, so yeah, it's going pretty well so far. We've been able to pick up some really early subtle changes in people's cognition prior to them being picked up on sort of traditional clinical pen and paper tests. Um, so it's been interesting to see that and also work with our patients and their clinicians in order to better manage their diseases as well. Very nice. So the PhD is slowly wrapping up. It's <laughs> trying to, yeah. Um, hopefully try and collect as much data as possible um, over the next few months and um, yeah, go from there. 
Do you, if you gave a gave a talk, I had a poster. Uh, I gave an online talk, so I think it was released on the very first day, on the Tuesday, actually. Yep. So whenever we came for sort of the pre-conference day, um, but it was just explaining some of the metabolomics work we've done. So. Uh, based on previous metabolomics we've done in Alzheimer's and Huntington's, we've been quite surprised at the number of similarities that we saw between what are generally two very different diseases. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to see if we looked at the Parkinson's disease dementia brain, how similar it would look if it would look more like Huntington's or Alzheimer's. So we work with postmortem brain tissues using multiple regions, about nine of them. So we want to see if changes are localized or if they're even in regions with low levels of neurodegeneration. And we're quite surprised to see that, for example, changes in glucose metabolism pathways, really high levels of fructose, which we didn't really necessarily expect to see in almost every single region that we're looking at, which mm -hmm. suggests that glucose is sort of moving away from glycolysis towards other metabolism pathways. So like polyol pathway, pentose phosphate pathway, also, extremely high levels of urea which wow you, yeah which you don't expect to see in the brain we're kind of scratching our heads trying to figure out where exactly it's coming from because as far as we know there isn't a complete urea cycle in the brain um i think there's um been some studies to suggest that exposure of of cells to amyloid beta could actually produce a complete urea cycle which would explain at least in alzheimer's where it's coming from but i'm quite interested in seeing if other proteins would do the same thing can I just ask a quick question around that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe they shouldn't have made it on demand, Will. <laughs> no, but I'm just quite intrigued. But how do you um, look into just ensure like the viability of the samples? Could it be because it's postmortem tissue, and I'm just wondering about so, um, contaminants. We're very careful about the postmortem delay, so we've gone to extremely long lengths to make sure that it's at least under 24 hours. So we actually okay. did a study in the rat brain to look yeah. at the effect of postmortem delay on mm -hmm. different metabolites. Mm -hmm. So the urea things like the urea and the fructose actually aren't too bad like uh, up to 24 hours they're fine I see. Um, yeah um some metabolites if you go past 24 hours or even some of them by you get by the time you're at the 24 hour point they're already changing so you have mm -hmm. to be careful depending on what you're looking at but we used our previous study to make sure that the things we were looking at were more stable and just obviously the question on my mind now is parkinson's more like huntington's or alzheimer's disease more like alzheimer's interesting yeah so we also looked at metals and we found decreased copper levels in almost every single region that we looked at in the alzheimer's and the parkinson's but we didn't find that in the huntington's we found altered selenium in the huntington's so it seems like they're those two are closer together and i'm interested in seeing if the dementia with fluid bodies mm, is yeah. in the middle or if it just looks like the parkinson's disease dementia we're just getting the tissues for those now but quite interesting are you getting them from the uk brain bank or? from the nih brain bank in the us okay. yeah so we've actually had to get them from two of the brain banks that are part of that network so the harvard brain bank and the sepulveda brain bank so we've got quite a big sample size now so it's 15 versus 15, which isn't huge, but when you're working with brain tissues, it's difficult. And we're looking at 10 brain regions, so it's 300 samples. So we've been spending over a year <laughs> getting these samples. Oh, so quite excited to finally have them. Good. Um, and I, I actually gave a talk as well on the big scary stage downstairs um, at an industry symposium on Thursday, because um, we've been looking at spatial transcriptomics, which is kind of this new and moving field where 
a lot of companies are now bringing out um, new new tools such as the Nanostring Cosmics machine and the Xenium from 10x and all of these things. And uh, as part of my research, I had the chance to trial the Nanostring Cosmics machine ahead of schedule in September. So we got the data uh, from from our mouse sample, and we've been since then desperately trying to analyze it, which turns out was a bigger job than anticipated. I don't know, as a wet lab biologist, I thought maybe we'll just do some analysis. And we start in September and we're slowly finishing up. Uh, but because we're now slowly finishing up, uh, Nanostring <laughs> invited me to kind of present my work and just kind of show to scientists what you can do with their with their machine and how it compares to what they advertise. Because there can be discrepancies between what companies promise you and then what you <laughs> <laughs> what you get once you send your samples in. <laughs> yeah. So do you so, have a bioinformatician to help you with your analysis? I, I have a bioinformatician. Um, we've just hired a second one. And I have to say, <laughs> I also I also learned a lot of bioinformatics um, since the summer. So we um, got data from this kind of nanostring cosmics, um, which is a bias technique. So you only get a thousand genes from, from your 20,000 cells. So it's actually a relatively small data set. And then we did some unbiased transcriptomics where we have half a million cells and 30,000 30, genes in total. And that was such an unruly data set that the bioinformaticians analyzing that because everyone decided I wasn't qualified. Um, and I get to play with a slightly smaller manageable data set. Um, but yeah, I, I, I learned a lot of bioinformatics. It's, it's, a, it's interesting. Yeah, it's the fun of doing omics. You kind of have to learn. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of get thrown, but I also think once you once you sit down and you have your own project, you do pick it up relatively quickly in a way. I find there is you want to be like, oh wow, and you're like, no, you just you have to. This is just pure survival. Just like you learn how to keep cells alive, you learn how to do your own analysis. So I presented data from our landmark um, finger interventional trial, which was um, one of the world's first multi-domain lifestyle interventions mm. to show any type of therapeutic benefit in terms of like, you know, cognition, but also functional outcomes and more recently cost benefits. And so I'm very interested in biomarkers with different contexts of use, so diagnostic, prognostic, but also like treatment response, right? Especially with all the advent of the disease-modifying therapies, um, given that we had a, an intervention that actually worked, I wanted to see if we could um, identify a marker, for instance, that would tell us, you know, whether people in the intervention groups, you know, what are those, mar what are the biological mechanisms for how they actually um, perform better than those in the control groups. And so I'm very interested in HPA axis, and the marker that I chose was cortisol. Um, and we and, and my group have shown that cortisol hypersecretion um, um, not only is associated with um, predicting cognitive decline, but it also predicts progression from a pre from the preclinical state. And because the finger participants were at risk or cognitively unimpaired relatively at baseline, um, it just seemed like a good marker to trial, right? Mm. Um, so went on to do the analysis, did the cortisol samples, and that was what I presented and hypothesized that yes, so we would see lower levels of cortisol in the intervention group, post-intervention compared to the control group, found absolutely no change. I did think, why are, why are you going to present negative data? But we're scientists, right? That's what we, yeah. we have to be, you know, we have to, to say everything. Have to say everything. Mm. What I did find though, 
was that, um, and I'd found this actually previously, and so it was nice to see some consistency showing that at least baseline cortisol was associated with, was able to predict odds of being amyloid positive versus negative, mm. but it was also able to predict brain longitudinal brain changes, so with grey matter volume um, particularly, and an AD cortical signature. So that was quite interesting, and I think our next step is because it was a lifestyle intervention, we noted that not everyone was adherent. Mm. Um, so not everybody in the intervention group actually like yeah. <laughs> adhered to the protocol. Yeah. So I think that we're gonna check, um, you know, in that adherent group to see whether it, you know, the hypothesis still stands. Mm. So, so what were the interventions? Ah, so it was a so there so fingers are like difficult to attend. (laughs) (laughs) So you have physical activity, you have nutritional guidance, cognitive um, stimulation, or you know, um, um, or or cognitive activities. We also have like vascular risk monitoring, and it's all embedded within this social engagement framework. So um, it's been tested and trialed now in. I think we're now in over 45 countries, um, so it's really expanded. The model is being ultra-culturally adopted around the world, hmm. globally. So, exciting times. Why do you think the cortisol didn't change? My, you have right? <laughs> So, my guess is, um, because there is already exist, existing evidence from single domain trials that show that, say, for example, with physical activity, with yoga and mindfulness, that cortisol levels do change in response in response to these sort of interventions. And I've published on this before, so I was expecting like a huge, 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 significant change. I think that because we looked in such a large sample, um, and also because we didn't well, they, we didn't focus on those who actually adhered to an intervention, we might have masked the actual effect. So there might still be a change, and we really need to. So we really need to do that, um, you know, to really look into mm. whether or not that um, adherence group have have indeed have their cortisol levels have have lowered, because then that provides you know some evidence on a potential biomarker for monitoring like treatment response. So you said there was like improvement for you know single domain studies if you just focused on yoga and mindfulness or yeah. you know whatever that is. Is it just too many things at once for older people that have their life? to live and you know um, friends to see and family and whatever it's like you know if you've got these five massive yeah, changes that they've got yeah. to change for their everyday life is it just too many things at once so your adherence is low Do you well think? i mean that's a really good question actually um so what we found was um, and there's been the adherence study has been published um so there are various factors that determine adherence because the um the the interventions are embedded within a social framework the feedback actually from participants even within the intervention group was they enjoyed it they enjoyed that social you know the social aspects of things but i know of course i do think that um even that you know these are elderly individuals mm-hmm. um and what surprised me though was there was cognitive benefits so there was an actual like the the primary outcome was met um so it could be that you know that's you know less sensitive and, and you know you need a more sensitive um increase in the intervention or you need a more sensitive aspect to the intervention to be able to measure biomarker changes so we've also looked at bdnf as well um in this group and found that um in the overall intervention cohorts no change whatsoever but when we looked in the adherent cohort bdnf 
actually there were changes. Mm. So it looks like with the biomarkers, it, people do need to actually do the intervention. <laughs> <laughs> Funny oh, how that works. That does make yeah. sense. And yeah. There was a post on that as well yeah. by a colleague. Okay, well, for anyone listening or watching, you know how these shows work. We take turns at talking about our best bits for this conference. There have been quite a few. So let's go to the highlights. So one of my favorite talks was by uh, Lenora Higginbotham. I think her name is pronounced. Uh, I think she's from Atlanta. Um, so I was quite impressed by her talk because she managed to take some really huge data sets and get them into like a, t a 10 minute talk. So uh, I actually, um, one of the data sets that she presented, I'd presented in a journal called before and it took me the best part of an hour to get through it. So <laughs> she's definitely more succinct than me. But um, she did a network proteomics in Lewy body dementias and Alzheimer's disease. And what they were doing is they were seeing if the changes in the different network modules were similar or different between um, Lewy body dementias, including Parkinson's disease, dementia and DLB um, against Alzheimer's disease. And what they found was that uh, modules associated with things like presynaptic signaling and differentiation were different between the two. Um, they also looked at the type of cells where these changes were happening. So as well as having these huge data sets, they were looking at, say, were they happening in neurons? Were they happening in astroglia? And most of the modules that were changed appeared to be changed in neuronal cells. So the actual sort of the specificity of the things that they were looking at was quite impressive. And I'm really interested in sort of looking further into their Lewy body dementia data to see how things like Parkinson's disease, dementia and dementia with Lewy bodies compare against Parkinson's without dementia. Mm -hmm. Because I would expect the two of those to look quite similar. Mm -hmm. But if you can compare them to Parkinson's without dementia, maybe we can get an idea of what's contributing to the cognitive symptoms as opposed to the motor symptoms in those diseases. Mm -hmm. So I'm just quite excited at these kind of data sets, especially the omics data sets <laughs> um, and seeing like, what more they can do with that data. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. so, do you want to talk about highlight, Chi? Yeah, I can. I'm happy to, um, you know, just give a broad overview um, <laughs> of, you know, some of the highlights and things that I liked. But I have to start with a major caveat. Um, I came to the conf in in these sort of conferences. I tend to have loads of meetings, <laughs> and so I had to be very specific about which, um, you know, which symposiums, which talks which places um, I wanted to attend and view. So I focused on biomarkers because that's, um, you know, my area of interest. And I, I was quite, you know, focused in terms of like, you know, areas of research interest, areas I wanted to really understand what this current state um, was, um, is and what the new discoveries were. Um, because, you know, the menu <laughs> available was just, it was amazing. Kudos to ADPD. So there were so many talks and like, you know, the state of fluid and imaging biomarkers with distinct contexts of use. Um, and, you know, from way from experimental models to, you know, lots of like new discoveries, for example, around like isotopes of existing markers. I like the Tau3, PTAL396 um, talk, but um, I, th I would say my current favorite was one that was beautifully derived by um, Dr. Thomas Karikari, um, the brain derived Tau. <clears throat> um, I found that really exciting and it was really interesting to see because, of course, we're always talking about ATN and working in clinical trials, it's so important to be able to stratify participants accurately. So we've got in blood AT and, you know, 
with Total Town not being super specific for N, it was great to see that there's potentially a new N on the horizon. <laughs> so carry on that research. Um, but I was also interested in methodologies. Um, so for instance, I'm really trying to be specific about the types of um, the analytes that we're measuring, but also the fluids or um, 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 that we're, we're looking at. So I looked into like the, um, I went to the exosome symposium and it was great to see they discussed like actual methods for isolation of brain derived exomal vesicles which are notoriously impossible <laughs> um, to, to isolate um, and I was quite pleased because we'd done our group um, at the biofluids based biomarker peer had done like a review to see well what are these what are the antibodies that we could use to really be specific um, and it was great to see like people are now looking at extracellular you know synaptic targets um, as well and this was excellently showcased by um, I think Dimitris Kapoyanis um, and G Gagan Deep as well um, and you guys have discussed like the um, precision approaches that we talked about like the multi-omics studies I found those really nice um, including the proteomics but I, I guess you know because I, you know, I work in discovery science, but I'm very interested. My background is translational neuroscience, and I'm always thinking, how are we going to benefit the patients? So I know I said I was going to start with what I like, <laughs> but I really want to also highlight that um, I was encouraged because we're now at the stage of thinking about real world implementation, um, and there was a Roche symposium where um, Dr. Wenda Broski she commented to say that you know we have all of these pieces. And, and you can imagine from all the excellent talks that we've gone to, um, but we really need to start thinking about how we're going to implement this in real life settings. Mm -hmm. And Professor Chinison gave a really great overview of strategies for implementing these sort of blood-based biomarkers and the applicable context. So I'm going to stop now because I'm... <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. yeah, no, keep going, yeah, keep going. I can go on into the things that I think we need to do later. <laughs> Yeah, I think the conference has been really broad and diverse. And yeah, yeah. you're absolutely right. There's so many different pieces of research that are coming yeah. together, which is really nice. But um, I sort of almost feel a little bit like a minority because I actually work with patients, like real mm. patients every day. Yeah. I know mm. what my patients are doing and what impacts them. And, you know, there's been... Um, just a handful of things that I've seen so far because there's heaps of blood biomarkers yes. and you know genes and stuff and that's been amazing and it's really good seeing a different side of mm. the research that's really different to my own but yeah coming back to you know how is this going to benefit the patient is really important mm -hmm. um so yeah, I thought there's been a few really interesting talks around um one I think yesterday potentially maybe the day before <laughs> all my days are one now um P uh, professor peter snyder from the university of rhode island um he was looking at uh, retinal biomarkers um which i think is really Ooh. interesting um my work a lot of the time is in perception and you know whether our patients are interacting well with their environment they can identify what they're looking at you know those sort of perceptual issues you know i've been able to see personally with patients that you know those sorts of things tend to go a bit earlier and they get missed um you know memory is something you can't really hide but you know perceptual things like if you accidentally bump into a table or something you know it's you're clumsy it's not oh my god I'm about to get dementia you know like you know if you start forgetting to pick your child up from school or whatever <laughs> that's a problem um so I, yeah I thought it was quite interesting um coming from you know actually what's happening from the eye rather than you know what's happening in terms of the pathways that are leading to your you know your visual cortex and how you're perceiving what's in front of you um so yeah he was um 
really interesting to talk to and he's totally right um you know we don't have these tests for dementia that people do all the time but you know you see your optometrist every couple of years because your eyes are terrible like and if you're me you see them every year and you get new glasses every year so you know as we get older our vision you know degrades a little bit so you get stronger glasses and you're seeing an optometrist or an ophthalmologist every year or two so having some sort of screening process there um, mm. to sort of see if there's anything going on where they can refer you to a neurologist to potentially catch that a bit earlier I think is really exciting um, so he was saying you know the retina is one of very few exposed tissues we have access to in a person <laughs> so you know if there's a way that we can sort of have a look at that um, and have a better idea of what's happening there it'll be important um, so in the retina there's um, the inner plexiform layer I think um, is got a cholinergic system within its layer um, and cholinergic systems and degeneration in those systems seem to be pointing towards, you know, cognitive deficits and a lot of different mm. um, neurodegenerative diseases. Um, so because there's some sort of cholinergic input there, there's something happening. So he was saying that um, there's a decrease in the layer of, uh, the decrease of the thickness of that layer, sorry, in the IPL in the eye, and that's happening quite early. Um, and in that layer, you can sort of see these like little inclusion bodies in the peripheral um, that we have missed, I guess, um, that a lot of cognitively normal people don't have. Um, so it sounds really um, interesting, exciting, um, especially because that sort of thing was happening before these people had, um, you know, their amyloid beta and tau deposits sort of coming up on their CSF. It was sort of prior to that in this preclinical stage. Yeah. So, um, yeah, kind of interesting to see that there's other things out there that's kind of pointing towards oh, yeah. perceptual things happening yes. earlier than what we thought, which is good. That sort of, you know, validates yeah. my research project. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's interesting that it's even happening from the eye before it even gets to the cortex. Mm. So um, I thought mm. that was really interesting. And, yeah, he's totally right if we can identify these changes in asymptomatic potentially amyloid positive people before these symptoms start happening we can absolutely help them better manage their disease they can you know talk to their families and their loved ones and sort of get a plan in place for how yeah. they're going to handle the next few years which is really important like that's a real world patient outcome which absolutely. is really important and i think also kind of then moving into the future once we have disease modifying yeah, uh, therapies you really want to get them into the oh, patients as soon yeah. as as you can yeah, diagnose absolutely. them yeah. so i think that's the, that's the other thing where I think at the moment we are catching it so late that there's a, a, you know a lot going on and there are a lot of comorbidities yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and absolutely. in that way I really enjoyed the plenary session yesterday from Dr. Musa Udem. God, that was butcher, but okay, we all know who I'm talking about <laughs> about PD therapies. We very much made a point at the beginning to say there is a lot going on what we call parkinson's is made up of psychiatric symptoms as well as motor symptoms and there's there's so much going on are we and I, i've been thinking that for a while now is, is there should we at one point maybe drop what we currently call alzheimer's disease and parkinson's and maybe go more towards the syndrome route of of the things you know of, of, of better stratifying the diseases because i think that also is this is a big problem we still have in the field where there's there's there is a lot going on and a lot of comorbidities yeah, that absolutely. could really impact yeah. and it helps now that you can go and you know do a spinal tap as you know painful and distressing as that sort of seems to be like you know you get your csf done and you do or you don't have alzheimer's and you know if you don't have it and it's like okay well what's next what's the next step what's the next thing we're looking for because you know that's the only thing we can definitely confirm that somebody has or not you know Parkinson's dementia is totally different. Mm -hmm. Dementia with Lewy body is totally different. We don't have yeah. a definite indicator whether somebody's got it or not. It's a process of elimination. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, which is takes so long. Takes so long, yeah. What the average turnaround for a diagnosis is what three and a half years. Like, <laughs> oh, it's t- three and a half years too long. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah there's a lot yeah. of change in three and a half years. Yeah. You know, like yeah. you have to get it earlier than that. Yeah, I think that the research with sleep as well around DLB, um, you know, and all of the new sleep type um, biomarkers mm. and tools. Um, mm. There are some fantastic talks in like EEG and sleep. So. This could, they sound promising for detecting yeah. um, DLB early, potentially. Yeah, I'm looking forward to going to some of those because I yeah. think there's some of those coming up today. Yeah. Oh, yeah, this yeah. in the <laughs> afternoon. Yeah, I know. Highlights are yet to come. <laughs> but, um, sort of going off uh, what both of you were saying. So, firstly, seeing inclusions not just in the brain, but also in the yeah. retina, and also yeah. talking about um, not just considering these as diseases, but Mara's syndromes, there's other things going on. Um, sort of a talk I went to yesterday by Kevin Javanshiri. Um, So he was talking about alpha-synuclein inclusions in the heart of people with Lewy body um, diseases. And um, he found that 88% of them had inclusions in cardiac nerves. Like absolutely none of the controls had it. It was a disease specific thing. Mm -hmm. And it was happening very early on. So even people with like brainstem type Mm -hmm. Lewy body dementia had these inclusions. And not only that, but um, sudden cardiac death accounted for about half of deaths in oh. these people that they looked at. So um, we've seen a similar thing in Huntington's where it's the second most common cause of death is cardiac failure. Wow. So I think we need to sort of start thinking that these aren't just brain diseases. These are full body diseases and we need to start looking at them in a more sort of holistic manner. Yeah. And it would certainly be very useful if we could get tissues that were just brain it's <laughs> like i'd love to have a look at the huntington's heart but i don't know how to get hold of that tissue um without like like going out and going out to specific patients and seeing if we can do it that way but there's not really banks that cater to that sort of thing and i think it's a shame that we're not collecting other types of tissue when we're collecting the brain tissue Hmm. Definitely, never crossed my mind, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's go. Yeah, um, that's quite interesting because um, I think one something I took from that, but also um, just generally something that struck me within the conference was um, the use of like personalized medicine approaches mm. because you really need to think about person centered and like you're saying, like you know, really think about things as a syndrome because a lot of these present with underlying and additional um, 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 conditions as well but it's really nice to see that they're starting to think outside the box and use these personalized medicine approaches with development for example of AD therapeutics so i'm quite interested in drug discovery so um it was nice to go to some of those industry um type presentations but also see academic academics as well being involved in the you know um, therapeutics development process and um what i noted was People are no longer just looking across board, but they're really targeting, like how you've talked about the cardiac, was it the cardiac myocytes? Specifically uh, the, cardiac that, the cardiac nerves. Yeah. So they're targeting specific profiles as well, and it's showing like a lot of promise. So um, I think one example um, was there was this trial, um, I think um, it was presented by Alzion's um, CEO. And um, what they've done is they've used, they used like a, so they're targeting, um, precisely targeting subpopulations of people um, to, to, with, with specific um, risk profiles. So with Alzion, they had like an APOE4 enriched cohort. Um, and then, you know, and they looked at, and they're actually um, like seeing 
I think what they presented, um, it was yesterday, yeah, or two days ago now. So, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's the one day. So, yeah. But what was exciting was you are seeing effect sizes even better than the cinema that we're all excited about. I mean, it's incredible. Um, and then I also saw another one, I think it was in the same um, symposium, actinogens 11 beta HSD1 inhibitor. I was I went there for the actinogen because it, it, <laughs> it modulates cortisol. Um, but it was great to like see efficacy by just targeting those with tau abnormality. And I think that this sort of um, you know personalized approaches will be quite useful. But um, I would say that my one of my favorites, I think, um, within the within the, um, the the talks I've attended so far was um, Miranda Orr, um, and she's you know an academic, and she used you know it was translational approaches, but um, she she's looking not just at AD or PD. You know, she's looking at like senescence, so sen- with her senolytics, so looking at cellular senescence. And it's a particular pathway that can then be evolved to multiple neurodegenerative diseases. And I think that approach is really fascinating. And we need this sort of combinatory therapies. But I mentioned finger, but what I should have said was fingers now being adapted to then add on like um, therapies. So Mia Kivipelto, who founded um, Finger, she gave a really good presentation on this topic, I think also to the... I think they were waiting for the Swedish queen or something to turn up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they're combining the lifestyle um, modify, um, lifestyle modification with an anti-diabetic. And it's obvious that these are, you know, we need to really start thinking outside the box when we're thinking towards like therapies for AD. So mm. it's great to see that. Yeah, thinking about like outside of the box, I really enjoyed a talk actually just from this morning from Hisoka Tanginava. He Ooh. looked at um, kind of, his introduction was like the hallmarks of a ca- like of finding hallmarks of cancer and how that can be applied to al- uh, neurodegeneration. And so they did this huge study with like 400 patients, single cell RNA seq, and you just think like, what are you gonna do with all of this data? And they pulled out these transcriptional hallmarks um, to kind of say, okay, what, what, can we stratify patients? Can, can we stratify them with that? And that, I found that was such an interesting approach of saying, okay, other diseases, particularly cancer, they are further in terms of treatments. What can we, what can we take yeah, from them? What from can that. we steal yeah, in terms absolutely. of like conceptual aspects? And I really like this idea of like, can we find hallmarks that connect patients? And that ultimately they found some hallmarks that could correlate with this kind of resilience that was discussed quite a lot this morning, kind of saying we have patients with similar loads of pathology without going on to develop dementia. And I think that was just a really nice way of tying together like all of these, you know, kind of four um, four brains here and four brains there that have been staying to kind of look at like, what's the difference between resilience and controls? And that's kind of where I come from and to kind of saying like, we, we flip it around. We can, yeah. we, instead of going from a resilient patient, can we identify them yeah. afterwards? Yeah. So I thought that was very um, interesting yeah. as well. Yeah. And it's really so. important because patients are so diverse, especially as you get older, you get more diseases. It's not just, you know, you don't just have Alzheimer's yeah. or just have Parkinson's <laughs> and that's it. Everything else is fine and dandy. You know, like there's so many different things that go into it. So, yeah, if we can definitely steal something from cancer research and, you know, <laughs> shorten the time it takes to get to the end and fully understand what happens in these elderly people, like it'll make a, it'll go a really long way. I've been quite excited by the the Amsterdam the over one hundreds cohort that oh, yeah, they've that been collecting. Oh, yeah, it's been a couple of talks with them. Yeah, talking about really good, yeah. sort of how they differ, their brains differ to mm. those of people with 
that went on to develop AD. Um, and they were talking about how even in healthy people over 100 who had higher, say, Talbrack stages, for example, uh, it didn't correlate with their cognition. But when they looked at the amyloid load, it did. And um, two-thirds of them had a lower amyloid beta load than the very lowest AD patient. Wow. So it seems to be that um, when we're sort of defining the disease and when we're stratifying it we will use these sort of traditional staging systems which are good but also taking into account other things like amyloid load are probably quite important if we want to have a look at resilience and mm-hmm. how people respond to treatment because it seems that other factors are in play here exactly I was like, yes yeah. keep talking about this interior <laughs> um, yeah. but yeah it was yeah amazing that you know they went through all the stuff they did their cognitive testing they did um you know this huge proteinomic sequence of these people I don't know I'm not in um, basic science but yeah you know getting to the point where you know they have younger brains and even though they have you know an amyloid accumulation which potentially falls somewhere on the normal spectrum they still had younger brains you know compared to um, the other people that were had diseases or whatever um, because they had you know less aggregated tau and you know more protein folding and um, less uh, more neurofilaments and that sort of stuff so it was yeah quite interesting to see that it'd be cool to see how to age without cognitive decline <laughs> and make it to 100. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, it was um, really interesting. I really enjoyed those talks. Yeah. yeah. Just going back to your comment about comorbidities, mm. um, it would be quite important. Um, I don't think we can like ignore that excellent plenary um, by Professor Mielke, where she mm. described disparities around blood biomarkers. I, it was refreshing to see that because I didn't see a lot of like people controlling for this sort of um, disparities um, in their own studies, as, as, you know, a lot of the talks that I went to anyways. Um, but, you know, she talked about it in relation to comorbidities across different ethnic groups. Um, mm-hmm. And what struck me even, I, I was blown by Professor John, I think John Morris's talk, showing how biomarkers relate to social determinants of health, because we always focus on like um, ethno-racial disparities and ignore socioeconomic disparities because that can actually influence blood biomarkers and those are really related to comorbidities um so it's really sad for me i guess um for, uh, to see that you know those sort of important characteristics and still not being fully considered when we're analyzing um data from real world cohorts um and most of the cohorts being described i guess they're still homogeneous in terms of ethnicity education level most of them are high socioeconomic status so we're seeing data from you know a very small percent of the population um and given the accelerations in drug and biomarker development and validation efforts i think the field just needs to do better with increasing representation when Mm. thinking about these new cohorts and i'm hoping that these considerations will be integrated in developing like appropriate use criteria and guidelines for how we're going to use biomarkers for different contexts there was a talk earlier just before this session um, by Dr. Federico Massa, mm-hmm. and here he used the Delphi model to divine, define a biomarker-based workflow to diagnose different neurodegenerative diseases, and he, he was using um, multimodal biomarkers. But again, the cut points have been developed in very, very homogeneous mm-hmm. populations. And for me, that's a good example of an approach to develop you know, these sort of um, diagnostic workflows but until we have enough diversity within yeah. our samples, 
we're going to get in trouble because we'll see that, you know, especially with the blood markers where, you know, comorbidities completely change the picture. Socioeconomic status, independent of ethnicity, change the picture. Yes. So, you yeah. know, we but, really, really yeah. need to. I mean, socioeconomic states in particular, I mean, we've heard so much about vascular comorbidities yeah. and we know how closely those are linked yeah. with socioeconomic exactly. status. So, exactly. And I mean, the reason it doesn't get looked at much is because of the type of samples we get and the type of yeah. recruitment we have. Yeah. So hopefully the sort of the pushes towards getting more representative cohorts, exactly. it actually at least gets looked at. Yeah, I think in one of the, um, it was not at all, um, it was a little bit off, traffic, off topic from um, the cholinergic um, imaging symposium from yesterday. Um, they were looking at, um, cholinesterase inhibitors for drugs and that sort of stuff. And one of the questions came up and the presenter couldn't answer it, but in the last year they changed the recommendations for um, the dosage for cholinesterase inhibitors because women have more side effects because all of the drug trials and stuff have been on men. So oh, they're yes. getting like a big, <laughs> I know, but they did, Please. yeah, and that's only just happened and it, like people mm. weren't aware of it. And it was mm. amazing that, you know, it shouldn't have been missed, but you know, having that lower dose of that medication might have a much better impact on female patients because we exactly. aren't having diverse samples when it comes to drug yeah. development, and that's yeah. been a big focus of this conference. Is you know the the drug rollout, but yeah. you know, it, okay, like how is that actually? Diversity, no, oh, yeah, yeah, the diversity. <laughs> okay. No, but yeah, there's like every second talk has been about this, uh, you know, drug development. But yeah. you know, it yeah. absolutely comes down to well, who are you testing? What are you yeah. measuring? And you know, is it actually working? And it should massively be focused towards personalized medicine because everybody is so different. <laughs> so yeah, seeing what drugs work for what people is going to be really important. It can't just be it'll work for Alzheimer's. Full stop. It needs to go beyond that. I think that's a that's a really good point and. I think this is um, where we'll slowly think we've we've talked about our main. That's what we'll do next. But before that, we'll we'll finish this up here. Um, and I think that's that's really good kind of yeah conclusion of this that there, there is a lot moving in the field now. But we really researchers we're always looking for the next question yeah. and we know the next problem that that we now need to solve, which yeah. is this diversity. Yeah. But before we wrap up, I have one last question. Uh, given that we've all of the talks we've seen. Is there one tip that you want to share about what makes a good presentation? I think we all have opinions on this now. <laughs> Should I start? <laughs> I, okay, I'll start. I've, 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 I've start. I think my, my tip would be assume your audience is ever so slightly less informed and sleepier than you currently think they are. <laughs> Just yeah. break it down. I think like, like I like a good introduction slide about Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's at any, at any talk, because then you know roughly where that presenter's coming from. So I really like the dumbed down, easy to follow <laughs> talks. <laughs> yeah, I think um, some presentations would benefit on choosing more of a focus. So obviously you can have these huge, really impressive data sets, but you've only got so much time to talk about them. So picking out particular bits and really being clear and explaining how they're relevant to people that don't work in those fields is really important if you actually want to get your message across yeah. clearly. Yeah, and um, my tip really follows along those lines just because, you know, I was late a couple of times for things <laughs> because I couldn't get away from talking. <laughs> I'm late for a really important meeting. So I, I do think that um, being very conscious of time and perhaps the moderator's not getting too carried away. <laughs> I mean, a lot of 
the talks I went to, they did fantastic jobs of like trying to um, moderate and explain, you know, you're coming close to the time. And, but, you know, because when you go over, then people who have burning questions and mm. somewhere to get to are one, not able to ask, you know, during the session. Because asking questions at the sessions are really informative. I learned so much from yeah, the, question the question sessions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, not that I didn't learn from the talks, but it's really great to really see how people are thinking and mm. a lot of the things that they're not able to put within the talks. Um, they're then able to really explain and expand on it and really have a dialogue around around it. And I think it's lessons for both the audience and perhaps even the presenter. So ensuring that you're um, as close to time as possible, one minute over, we won't kill you, but <laughs> 10 minutes <laughs> over is like um, yeah. really difficult for everyone. Yeah. Um, I think, oh no, you guys might be different, but there's been a few talks where it's just all this background, all this, all these methods that, you know, potentially aren't really useful. And then you've got one slide at the end that sort of gives you the results. It's like, no, that's the interesting part. Like, yeah. you know, like I'm, I'm not in, a, you know, genomics and applied biomarkers. Like tell me the basic of what I need to know and then mm. tell me the important parts of your research yeah. and focus on that. Like show me the cool graphs and the cool mm. pictures and the, mm. you know, the histology, like show me that cool stuff and really talk me through that. But before that, just give me the bare minimum I need to understand your graph. <laughs> like I know there's a lot that goes into a project and, you know, for some out of field like you know just tell me the amazing part of your research that's what I want to see that's where the most of your time should be not the last 10 minutes uh, the last two minutes of your 15 minute talk <laughs> you know, to, yeah, no, no, I have I have so many questions like what, what did you do next like how does this work like yeah absolutely like you know tell me the cool part about your research that's what I want to hear I mean on that theme uh, it's something that's come up at previous conferences where Obviously, everyone's doing different things. You have your own specialization, but you also have clinical and you have basic scientists. Yeah. And they so often have very little knowledge of how yeah, each other's science, type, type of science works. Mm -hmm. So giving all these like really detailed explanations yeah. doesn't help. You need to no. explain it in a way that someone who doesn't do what you do exactly, understands. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's a very different thing to writing a paper on yeah. one. <laughs> I have found, like, with these, because I'm obviously not a basic scientist, and like, hey, you know, we've shown that this is correlated with cognitive impairment and this is done whatever. I'm like, cool, so what's your measure of cognitive impairment? Like, oh, we just did a test. I'm like, cool, what test? Like, <laughs> this is this is what I do. Like, I'm actually interested. I want to know what's how you're measuring this stuff. And like, oh, yeah, it's called a something, something, something. And I'm like, all right, yeah, they don't know. They don't know what it is. I'm like, you know, the cognitive stuff is what the patients actually care about. You know, that's their everyday day to day stuff. So even if it correlates with whatever your cognitive impairment measure is, like it needs to be a good one. <laughs> you know, it can't just be like a really hard test that everybody's going to fail. You know, it needs to be something that's specifically so, yeah, and targeted yeah, to their exactly cognitive that. ability. There's a converse as well, where if mm. you're a basic scientist, you obviously know some of the cognitive tests, but sometimes you just get an acronym. It's like, well, yeah, exactly. what kind of cognition it, is this Definitely, It definitely is heading that way. Cause you're like, yeah, we just run the whatever. And it's like, cool, well, what is that? I don't, you know, we don't use that in Australia. Tell me what it is. And like, oh, well, it, just, it gives you a global sense of their cognition. I'm like, yeah, I get that. But like, <laughs> what are they actually doing? It's, um, yeah, it's absolutely, you're totally right. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's that next step. Does, yeah, exactly. Just, cool. yeah, just like pull like, it all together yeah exactly that you you never normally exactly like, last time i read a biomarker <laughs> paper might have been a while ago but now you've got someone spoon feeding to you and you're like yes 50 minutes that's yes fine. yes it's i'm, an, I'm an expert now yeah exactly. <laughs> like, i feel like I, I know what's happening in the field now without having read exactly yeah yeah, yeah that's exactly yeah. right can yeah. i just share um one observation though um just because um there's been like multiple papers now i'm talking about like gender balanced panels mm. um and how they actually affect um 
you know, questions, um, doing sessions and engagement from audience. Um, so for the ones that I, most of the panels that I attended, I did note the gender balance and I did note ECRs asking questions and women asking questions, which is different to the Lancet paper where they actually looked at it and then provided recommendations for gender balance. So it sounds like ADPD might have read the paper and then did something about it and it's actually worked. So I don't know if they'll be able to um, check those metrics, but it was quite interesting to see something I'd read in a paper as a gap and then actually see yeah. it work in real time was yeah, really fascinating. And I love the question and answers during presentation. Mm. I'm still in that tip because <laughs> you've asked for what we, what one advice is, have like a, to, to really engage because presentations and you're right like some of them are super early i'm not a morning person anymore you're trying so hard maybe you haven't had a coffee or you just managed to get like and you're trying to finish your coffee but when you engage people with you know those um i think they had like these um the interactive sessions where you yeah. got to vote i always woke up at those times <laughs> that that, that really the helped games. yeah that's exactly, <laughs> I wake yeah. Up at the fun yeah it's gonna be entertaining it's gonna bring you more yeah, yeah. yeah i was yeah. really upset at one of the forums that i went to where i think they forgot to actually look at the audience questions. oh no <laughs> oh no like, like i'm ready i'm ready i've got I'm my answer for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like your discussion is interesting but there's questions yeah, yeah that's on. it yeah i'm ready like <laughs> tell me if i'm right <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah it's um yeah it's been quite good so that's all we have time for i hope you enjoyed listening or watching and if you want to find out more about any of the research we discussed head over to the adpd website the online portal is open for another 30 days i didn't know this to my fabulous guests um this has been so much fun we had dr g uda mama i'm learning uh, <laughs> fabulous dr melissa schofield and the incredible emily mccann thank you everyone Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> and I'm Dr. Anna Malak, and you've been listening to the Dementia Researcher podcast. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.